0: So I wanna continue the series that I've been exploring, uh, particularly the last few times. And this is really looking at the, what could be called the heart of our practice, which is the transformation of reactivity. And this is within a larger series that I've been doing since last year that I'm calling From the Ordinary Mind, from the ordinary habitual mind to the Buddha mind. And I've had a very uh, simple uh, structure. I've identified about 10 different dimensions of transformation, and I've already explored quite a few of them, exploring how our thinking is transformed, the more cognitive dimension, how the emotional life is transformed, the sense of the transformation of the body, also have looked at uh, how our sense of time is transformed, our sense of self. And in looking at each of those, I've had a very, very simple structure of asking first, what's the habitual conditioning? What's the nature of what we might call our ordinary habitual mind first? And then secondly, trying to get a sense of what according to that particular dimension, sense of time, sense of self and so forth, what does that look like in the awakened mind, in the mind of a Buddha as best we can from our own experiences and from texts and so forth. And then thirdly, perhaps the the crucial uh, aspect here, the third aspect is how do we get from one to two? How do we transform our ordinary habitual mind? In other words, how do we practice? And so, so far I've looked at a number of these different dimensions and the dimension that we're in the middle of looking at is what we can call uh, reactivity. Uh, How the ordinary habitual mind is reactive and I'm using that in a pretty specific sense that reactivity means the tendency somewhat automatically or compulsively to grasp after what's pleasant and to push away what's unpleasant that's uh, how I'm talking about reactivity Uh, the first uh, session on reactivity was I think the Uh, I think it was May 6th, and there I looked at the nature of reactivity, particularly in the context of the teachings of the Buddha, looked at two teachings, especially one dependent origination and one the teaching of the two arrows, to get a better sense of the nature of reactivity, the nature of non-reactivity, and then look at some basic practices. And last time I continued that last time was May 13th and those uh, talks, the recordings are on Dharma Seed if you wanna be with the whole series. And I I brought in the interesting uh, perspective that makes it challenging uh, in some ways uh, to work with reactivity, because we might just think, oh, I'll just get rid of reactivity. I'll just end reactivity. But it's a little more complicated than that because um, reactivity is often connected with insider discernment. That would be obvious if I'm very reactive, let's say, about someone not keeping an agreement or reactive about injustice. I can be very reactive about those things, even though from a certain perspective I have insight or I'm seeing something that's important to see. And that I simply don't want to give up because I'm reactive, right? So that's where we looked last time. And this time I want to take a little bit further and look at how reactivity and noticing reactivity can be a way when we look deeply at reactivity of actually going into some of our deeper conditioning, even... Material we may call unconscious and habitual in a way that lets us actually transform some very deep conditioning. So that in a sense is looking at reactivity, that's what we'll look at most of today, as an opportunity to work through, cut through, transform unconscious material that we wouldn't even often know about unless we were paying attention to reactivity. So this is more reactivity as great opportunity. Yeah. Or as one of my students sometimes says a little bit cynically, another effing growth opportunity. Okay, so. um, So I wanna give a little bit of review of where we've been, and then go into this uh, third way of looking at reactivity uh, for most of the most of the session. So the again, the definition of reactivity is uh, very crucial. That reactivity I'm defining as the uh, grabbing hold of the pleasant or the pushing away of the unpleasant typically in an automatic or unconscious or compulsive way. And in ordinary English, we sometimes use reaction simply to mean uh, a way of uh, responding to what's there. And In that sense, in that usage, it's not necessarily reactive in the way I'm using it. So I just want to distinguish how I'm using the term from some ways it's used in um, ordinary English. So in the in the session two times ago, we looked at the um, very fundamental teaching of the Buddha, and I interpreted the uh, I interpreted the Buddha's sense of dukkha in terms of reactivity and this this can be one of the confusing aspects of the teachings of the buddha is we we may know that uh, dukkha usually translated as suffering is uh, right at the center of the teachings and the aim is to end dukkha the buddha says i teach dukkha and the end of dukkha However, in the discourses, uh, there are multiple meanings of dukkha. And I I went into detail on this uh, two times ago. And it can be confusing because some of the meanings of dukkha include the unpleasant. Well, we don't get rid of the unpleasant. The unpleasant doesn't end. That aspect of dukkha doesn't end. Similarly, uh, the dukkha, dukkha, one other meaning is that dukkha means that ordinary experiences can't be ultimately satisfying well that doesn't change either and so we don't end dukkha in that sense but there's another sense of dukkha as reactivity which makes more sense in terms of what we of what we uh, can can possibly end and i'm going to and that that teaching can appear in a few sources and so suffering can be a little bit confusing or misleading we don't certainly don't get rid of suffering in the sense of what's painful or difficult. That doesn't change. what we have the potential of transforming is the reactivity And so uh, Gabrielle, we can bring on the the first document now. this will be the uh, essence of the teaching of dependent origination which the Buddha, said came from his night of awakening and I'm going to come back to this and but this is really the central part of the teaching which is really about reactivity it says that in every moment of sense experience which includes thinking there's some contact with the senses some contact and so we have uh, we hear we feel we have a thought and so forth on the basis of that contact with the senses there's a sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This is just happening every moment. When there's not mindfulness and when there's ignorance of a basic kind, when there are habitual tendencies in which we think that we will gain happiness by grasping after the pleasant and avoiding the unpleasant, when there's not awareness, we will tend on the basis of the pleasant to want or to crave in the the usual way the translation occurs of the word tanha. When there's something unpleasant, we will tend to not want it. And on the basis of this, we will grasp after the pleasant and push away the unpleasant. And often this happens, as we know, virtually automatically. You know, I see something I want and I grab for it. You know, someone says something I don't like, I instantly say something back negative, essentially pushing away the earlier comment with my words, right. And so this is what we looked at. And this is really sort of the central meaning of reactivity in these two particular forms. And we could we could think about forms of reactivity that might be there now during the pandemic things that are unpleasant unpleasant emotions there could be loneliness or anxiety or um, fear Um, there also could be very uh, pleasant experiences that we're either experiencing or that we want maybe wanting to see someone a, a longing to see someone that we can't see because of sheltering in place, if that's there in your locale. So we can let go of the uh, document now, uh, Gabrielle. And so if that's the nature of reactivity, then what occurs in our practice is that we learn how to transform reactivity. And the Buddha Often talked about awakening, and I gave quotes uh, the last few times. He often talks about awakening as the ending of grasping, and we could we could say also by implication of pushing away. We could say that awakening is the end of reactivity. And so that's really what the Buddhists are pointing to. And so we looked then at how do we practice, how do we cultivate non-reactivity? And so, you know, I gave a number of practices, and we many of us worked with the practices. First of all, we we almost like we create a liberated space. We develop non-reactivity in our mindfulness or our loving-kindness, and we have a taste of non-reactivity. And then we bring that into our experience. So we we bring mindfulness into our experience to look at reactivity. We often say mindfulness of reactivity is not reactive. Mindfulness of anger is not is not angry. And so we cultivate mindfulness of the reactivity. We also can work with our wisdom dimension in looking at the teachings like I just gave or the teaching of the two arrows, which I won't give now, but which I gave uh, several times ago. And we have a better understanding that when there's something pleasant, we will tend to push it away. And we often will do that automatically. And often the pushing away of the unpleasant creates a great deal more of the unpleasant. We know that with interpersonal conflicts something unpleasant occurs to me, someone says something unpleasant, I say something unpleasant right back, and we have a two hour or two week or two year interpersonal difficulty. Anyone relate to that? Hold your hand. Right, so we know that, right, so uh, that's, uh, that's how we could practice. We, we see the understand, we understand a little bit better. And I also talked about the importance of bringing in the heart practices of loving kindness and compassion to sort of hold uh, ourselves as we go into what's difficult. And then I also, last time, uh, brought in this interesting complexity that often, maybe even most of the time, our reactivity is connected with something that we could call in a sense valid or important. And so our practice isn't simply to get rid of reactivity. That would be nice. And so I would rather use the language of transforming reactivity as opposed to simply getting rid of reactivity if I simply try to suppress, let's say, my anger or my anxiety or my wanting of something, typically that's not gonna work well. We don't get rid of reactivity typically by suppression or by just wanting it to go away. And one of the reasons that is is because often the reactivity is linked with something positive with something that's valuable. Again, I I gave the examples of um, someone not keeping an agreement, I become reactive about that, maybe judgmental, negative, angry, irritated. Similarly, I might be aware of injustice and be very reactive about that. Well, here the aim really isn't to get rid of reactivity, but it's to transform reactivity. And here's the formula. We want to transform the reactivity so that we can preserve whatever is valuable or insightful or valid that's been caught up with the reactivity. We want to preserve that, but we want to do inner work so we transform the reactivity, essentially separating the reactivity from what's valuable. Separating the reactivity from what might be a noticing, a discernment, seeing something clearly. And then on the basis of that transformative work, we're in a place where we can use the insider, the discernment, or the noticing, or what's valuable as the basis or the starting point for skillful action. So if I've done my inner transformative work, with being irritated about my friend not keeping the agreement, and I've worked through my reactivity so I'm no longer reactive, then I can actually approach my friend without reactivity and talk about what happened. There are a lot of steps to, there, to get there that we would clarify, but the basic formula is that we separate out the reactivity from what's valuable so that we can then respond non-reactively easier said than done but that is i think it's helpful to see that as a general uh perspective or a way we hold it the same thing with noticing injustice if i stay really reactive i think i become i may be an activist but i would say that we're not as effective and we would get into demonizing the opponent we'd still have a lot of reactive energy and i would say that the most skillful activists are those who've done their inner work with their with their reactivity right because then the it's possible for the opponents to actually hear what one's saying you know and here i'm i'm uh, actually Making a reference, I would say, and this is what I find, to to uh, those who have been advocates of nonviolent uh, action, like uh, Gandhi or King or Dorothy Day, and we find there, uh, similarly, an emphasis on inner work. And ways of taking what's valuable. Uh, and but separating out as much as possible action from the reactivity. So we looked we looked there a lot. And this morning I wanna go into a third area that builds on the first two. And this is where we can start to see and start to work with reactivity that may surface in patterns. And this is where we can actually see many of our patterns of reactivity as linked with old habits. And this is where we can notice reactivity and actually start to study reactivity more closely as a way of getting at what's beneath the surface, our old patterns, our old habits, our unconscious tendencies, many of which have been there for a very long time. In other words, we use the reactivity as a wake-up call and as a, uh, what, Um, a sign that there's something that's been more habitual that we can transform. And I want to talk, I want to refer really to three areas where we can see that. One of them would be in the area of uh, trauma. For example, some of our reactions may be linked for some of us with something that happened in the past. That comes into the category of what we call trauma, where in some way there was a very very difficult experience. You know that actually affects the body. One definition of trauma is dysregulation of the nurse nervous system. It could be, uh, you know, it could be something very powerful, like experiencing violence of some kind. Verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse as a child. It could be having experienced some kind of an accident. It could be if one comes from a place where there's been a lot of violence. And there, there is a way that we can, if we have a sense of the trauma and here it's very helpful to work with a guide or a, a therapist someone who knows the territory we can actually use our reactivity as um, an indication that there might be trauma there again we would we would want to get a sense of what it might be could you know uh, habitual reactivity could be many things probably more, much more commonly, would be that there could be some uh, pattern that, uh, again, may have come from childhood and one, one of the ways this might surface as as a pattern maybe of self-judgment or of judging others. There might be something like what we might call uh, a very old limiting belief that was set up a long time ago that might be connected with uh, reactivity in the present moment. Even something like becoming a moral authority. You know, I don't know if you've experienced it, but Mm. one of the things that's come up with the pandemic is that certain people decide that they're moral authorities about who should wear masks and who not. Anyone notice that? That, or maybe in oneself, one, one has a lot of moral comments. And again, there can be something valid here, but this may be a very, very old pattern. So there can, be, uh, there can be also psychological conditioning, or it could be, it comes out very, very clearly when we look at what we call the judgmental mind. We may see very old patterns in which I think, I won't get love unless I'm perfect. Perfectionism would be a kind of deep habit or conditioning, which we can, when we notice our reactivity and start looking at it, we can actually start to see these old patterns more clearly. And I think a third area where this can surface is in noticing our social conditioning. We may notice reactivity, and this may be a clue as we look at it more about conditioning related to gender or race or sexual orientation or age all sorts of areas where the social conditioning is largely unconscious and one this is one way i think of getting at what the buddha called an underlying uh, ignorance and underlying habits and here gabrielle we can bring in the document number two And here, I don't know if we can see the whole thing, uh, but yeah, that's a little. That's, yeah, that's that's a little better. But we can we can leave the title out. Um, that this is the whole model of dependent origination, which I'm not going to go into in detail. We looked at uh, numbers six through eight or six through nine earlier, and I just wanted to add one piece, which is that the whole cycle of reactivity is there because of number one and two, an underlying ignorance, an underlying, in modern terms, we would call it unconscious material and habitual tendencies. And this area I'm looking at right now could be reinterpreted as a way of getting at our underlying ignorance or part of our underlying ignorance that when we have Uh, Trauma, when we have psychological conditioning from a young age, when we have social conditioning from a young age, these all go unconscious, and yet they still determine our behavior. Noticing reactivity can be one way of getting at what's typically unconscious and automatic and habitual, and can get right at some of the underlying ignorance and helps us to end this whole cycle. So we can, we can take away this uh, image now, Gabrielle. Now the, the Buddha, the Buddha talked about ignorance more in terms of not knowing impermanence, not knowing actually dukkha and how it works, and not knowing the nature of the self, not knowing the nature of the sacred. But I think for me, a contemporary reading of ignorance adds these uh, three unconscious areas that we know more about in the contemporary world. Yeah. I just wanted to mention maybe two books which I've been reading. Um, one of them is called, I'll, I'll hold these up. One of them is called My Grandmother's Hands, which looks at the link between trauma and race and looks at a lot of the conditioning there. Actually, these books are more on trauma. Another one I've been looking at is called Wounds into Wisdom, Healing Intergenerational Jewish Trauma. Very, very interesting work. Wounds into Wisdom by Rabbi Terza Firestone, My Grandmother's Hands by Resmaa Menachem. And, So another way of saying this, I, I found a poem by Rilke. He says it this way. No one lives one's life. Disguised since childhood, haphazardly assembled. From voices and fears and little pleasures, we come of age as masks. Our true face never speaks. Somehow there must be storehouses where all these lives are laid away, like suits of armor, or old carriages, or clothes hanging limply on the walls. Maybe all paths lead there to the repository of unlived things. It's a very powerful poem by, by Rilke. I think it really brings that point out that much, uh, much of our lives are really guided by unconscious conditioning and ignorance. It's a little bit of an affront to our, self, our sense of self, isn't it? But that's certainly the teaching of the Buddha, and that's certainly a core teaching of those who've looked deeply at these three areas I mentioned, more in the contemporary world, at trauma, psychological conditioning, and social conditioning. <clears throat> so how do we work with getting at this material. I want to be on the the brief side here and talk about four stages by which we can work with, our, uh, by which we can approach and get at this unconscious material. And I'll be on the brief side, but this is something we could take actually take a number of weeks and look at. So here, maybe let's bring on the third document, Gabrielle. So this is, um, this is a diagram which I developed, particularly in the context of working with the judgmental mind. But I think it really holds for a number of these areas. And I, I, I want to identify four stages and then look briefly at each of them. Then we can open things up. The first stage is where we basically start to be able to access what is more unconscious, what is beneath the surface in part by exploring reactivity. And this first stage may take a long time. We can stay with this first stage for months or even years. At a certain point, We start to see patterns, maybe patterns of our reactivity, and maybe we get a sense that there's what we can call limiting belief. And I'll come back and give a definition to what I mean by that in, in a moment, that we may have a sense that so much of my relationship to my emotions is structured by a limiting belief, let's say, anger is bad. And I come to study that, work with it, identify that limiting belief and get to know it much more clearly. At a third point, and the uh, number two and three are typically done in protected environments, maybe in a retreat or uh, working with a mentor or therapist or coach. At a third point, I become able to reverse that earlier limiting belief. Maybe I've looked at anger a lot, I've opened to it some, and maybe I develop a sense that anger is just part of human life. And I start to have a very different relationship to anger. And then the fourth stage is that I'm able to then stabilize the transformation in daily life. This is a sort of a four-stage model which um, is similar to something that I learned when I went through uh, a a two-year training in uh, body-based psychotherapy with an approach called Hakomi. Some of you may, may know that. So let me talk about each of these four, and then we can open things up. We can take away the document now, Gabrielle. Okay, so the first stage is that of really accessing what's beneath the surface, of starting to just explore. And this is where we, on the one hand, develop a number of tools, like mindfulness, loving kindness, and we start applying them, uh, secondly. And so, it's as it were, we're going on a journey and we need to develop these tools that will help us to explore what is beneath the surface. You know, that will help us to explore, in the case that I'm looking at today, uh, explore our reactivity as a way of getting at what is unconscious or beneath the surface. So, we need tools to do that. We need mindfulness. I, we, we need to, I think, become more aware of the body. A lot of our information will come from bodily experience. So we need to develop mindfulness of the body. This may come from being uh, with some body practice like uh, yoga or qigong, something like that, that we develop the uh, capacity to be more aware of the body. We learn how to be with reactivity, for example. We go through that, that process. Uh, we learn loving kindness practice, we learn compassion practice, so that as we go into what's challenging or difficult, we can keep balance. Because as we go into the uh, reactivity, uh, some of it's going to be connected with pain and with some unpleasant experiences, some of them old. And so we need a lot of resources to go into this territory. We need to have the resources of the heart practices, and we need to also know when it feels like too much. And so this is some of what we do at the, at the first stage. Um, you know, again, we may need to work with a, a mentor or coach or therapist as we explore. And at a certain point, we start to get a sense that there may be some habit energy here. You know, as we're still in the first stage, we may have a sense that we're noticing certain patterns, that we're noticing, oh, gosh, I'm really hard on myself. Gosh, I'm really somewhat of a perfectionist. Or I really have this thing about anger, right? I'm giving some examples, which actually come out of my own personal history and probably many of yours. How many of us have some perfectionist tendencies? You can raise hands. So, so you'll many of us may have noticed in our meditation these kind of patterns that we we uh, find ourselves often judging ourselves for not having done so well. As we explore this more, we start to just see these patterns more and more. And we may get a sense, ah, there's a way that some of my experiences are unified. There's something like what I might call a limiting belief. And I'm using that term to mean some kind of very simple belief often developed in childhood that organizes our experience. It may be one like, anger is bad. I might not really even realize that I have the limiting belief. It's typically unconscious. It might be, I am not okay unless I'm perfect or I won't get love unless I'm perfect. Generally, the limiting beliefs can be in three areas. Some of the limiting beliefs are about me And my nature. I'm not okay. Anger is not okay. Uh, And I'm emphasizing a little bit more than negative ones. There can also be positive ones. Uh, Another one might be that uh, this part of my experience is not okay. I'm okay as long as I don't speak up. Or I am okay as long as I help others and don't ask too much of myself. Very, very common pattern. Right? Um, And so we start to see, or another one, another set of limiting beliefs can be around our relations with others. I may have a limiting belief that my needs will not be met. Or that uh, I'm not safe with this person or that person. I can also have limiting beliefs about the whole nature of the world, like, I can't really trust people, or people aren't safe, or the world really isn't safe. And again, I'm emphasizing a little bit more the negative one. And we, as we start to get, as we start to really stay with our reactivity a lot, we, and we'll, we'll notice patterns, and we'll start to see that there may be a very, very repetitive pattern. Limiting beliefs are connected with a lot of repetition, and they tend to be, in their essence, very simple. They come from typically a young age. And uh, again, limiting beliefs can come from from trauma as well and can come from experiences we have when we're older, but a lot of them come when we're we're younger. You know, another limiting belief might be, if I get close to people, uh, I will, uh, they will go away, sort of a sense of abandonment. I've talked with a number of people who had divorces occur when they were five years old or seven years old or nine years old. And many of them tended to develop a limiting belief that if people get close to me, they'll leave, which then were still there when they were adults having close relationships, right? And they could see, they could start to see the patterns in uh, noticing their reactivity which could take the shape of being judgmental and so forth. So as we get more familiar with this, we also start to be able to open to it experientially. You know, I notice I maybe get a job evaluation that's not so good, and I go into my perfectionist mode, and I'm in a funk for a weekend, but I bring my mindfulness to it and I study it. And I get really familiar and I say, oh, I'm going into my perfectionist limiting belief. And we get very familiar with how it feels. We get familiar with it. We're not scared of it. And at that point, we're ready to go into the third stage where we actually can start to invite a different way of approaching a particular area, you know, uh, where we can go into a space of transformation. So again, I may have a different attitude towards my anger or I may have a different view of um, what it means when I don't do well at something and I may have a much more compassionate way that's accepting of my limitations and maybe I have a sense that no matter what I do, maybe the transformed sense might be no matter what happens, I'm deserving of love. Maybe we come out of that process in that way. One person I worked with found a limiting belief, I, as a divorced woman, cannot be happy. She found she had that. When we worked with the transformation, it appeared as, I am a radiant, beautiful being. And along with the uh, this third stage where those were identified, we have, as it were, I don't know if homework's the right word, but we had a whole curriculum to keep developing in that way, to keep, uh, to strengthen that view. And then the fourth stage is that of uh, really of stabilizing and integrating the transformation in our daily experience, you know, and again, that can take some time and, you know, generally under stress, we may regress to for the limiting beliefs to be there. But generally speaking, what I've I've suggested is uh, a model of how we can use certain kinds of repetitive reactivity as a starting point for getting at what's unconscious, for getting at what's beneath the surface. And I thought I'd end by, let me see if I can find this, with a poem. And this is a... A beautiful poem this is by John O'Donohue an Irish poet and this is uh, framed in terms of uh, of trauma but I think it really applies to all of what I've talked about including the limiting beliefs and then actually I think it goes through the four stages so again the suggestion is at certain times the reactivity can be noticed and open us up to deep unconscious patterns. So this is entitled, For Someone Awakening to the Trauma of One's Past. For everything under the sun, there is a time. This is the season of your awkward harvesting, when the pain takes you where you would rather not go. Through the white curtain of yesterday's to a place you had forgotten you knew from the inside out and a time when that bitter tree was planted. That has grown invisibly beside you and whose branches your awakened hands now long to disentangle from your heart. You were coming to see how your looking often darkened when you should have felt safe enough to fall towards love. How deep down your eyes were always owned by something that faced them through a dark fester of thorns, converting whoever came into a further figure of the wrong. You could only see what touched you as already torn. Now the act of sensing begins your work of mourning and your memory is ready to show you everything. Having waited all these years for you to return and know, only you you know where the casket of pain is interred. You have to, you will have to scrape through the layers of covering, and according to your readiness, everything will open. May you be blessed with a wise and compassionate guide who can accompany you through the fear and grief until your heart has wept its way to your true self. As your tears fall over that wounded place, may they wash away your hurt and free your heart. May your forgiveness still the hunger of the wound so that for the first time, you can walk away from that place, reunited with your, with your banished heart, now healed and freed, and feel the clear, free air, bless your new face. So let's sit for a moment together. Thank you. I'd like you to be with whatever may have found helpful or important for you, And maybe with a sense of how you might like to go further in your work with reactivity. You also can ask yourself, do you have any questions or something you'd like to share? Maybe an insight from your own experience. So thank you very much for your kind listening. And we have some time now, maybe about 15 minutes, if there are any, uh, could be a question, could be a sharing. If you're going to share something, try to be on the brief side so we can hear from a number of people.
1: So the first person that would like to share or ask a question is Michael. And um, Great. I'm trying to, um, yeah, there you go, Michael. You're I'm not here. Needed. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Donald, thank you again. It's just wonderful to spend these Wednesday mornings with you. Um, what comes up for me as you're saying this and looking with reactivity is um, I see a lot of my life, what I call laziness or sloth. La- laziness? Listen, laziness, sloth. Yeah. Sloth, yeah. That, okay. Yeah. This is hard work and it's so much easier to stay in your habits.
0: Yeah.
1: And so I feel that um sense of I don't know if hopelessness is the word or neg- or just not confidence that I can I can do this. Um it, it reminds me of the saying that vacations would be great if you didn't have to take yourself with you. <laughs> you know, yeah. I can keep changing environments, I can do that, but I'm still the same old me with the same old habits, regardless of, of where I am.
0: Yeah. Uh, Michael, are you part of a community or practitioners?
1: Yeah, I've been practicing now for over 30 years. Yeah. Uh, going back to the mental physics days. Yeah. So, um,
0: yeah. Yeah, maybe let me, let me respond briefly. Um, maybe just to say, I hear that I hear that question of uh, whether I can go there uh, or, and it is, um, it is challenging to go into the unconscious material. The positive aspect of it is that things can happen with the right support and the right guidance remarkably quickly. This is where you know we, we benefit from remembering what some of the neuroscientists have told us about neuroplasticity, that uh, actually uh, we can change very long-standing habits remarkably quickly. And so, I certainly see that in the work I've done over almost the last 20 years with people exploring uh, what I call the Judgmental Mind and transforming it, which gets right into the territory we've just explored. Very, very deep stuff. And I've seen people uh, have transformations remarkably quickly. Um, That there can be some doubt or discouragement that I think it comes with the territory for everyone. So it's quite normal, not not really a problem. So I think it's just to maybe to, uh, the main thing is just to take the next step, whatever that is for you you don't have to, you know, you don't have to look at the whole immensity of what you want to do, but just see what draws you to take the next step. That's what I would say. Um, and, you know, the next step may be just to uh, deepen your mindfulness practice, not necessarily to think about all your habits. Uh, but it's, uh, I think I just want to be more encouraging in the sense that it can feel like my habits have just been with me and they follow me on my vacations and so forth, but they're um, they are surprisingly uh, Transient, you know. I I, again, maybe I'll give one example. I I've worked with someone who um, had very difficult childhood and was essentially given a lot of negative material from father and older brother, such that at a certain age, probably by being ten or so, he had every morning he had the thought, "I'm going to mess up today." That was with him continually. And I started working with him when he was about 55. We've actually worked together 15 plus years. And that thought was still appearing when he was 55 years old, every morning. I'm gonna mess up. We found with really a lot of focused work, that actually was changed. It took that, It wasn't quick, it wasn't like, okay, a weekend. But we found in a year year and a half, a lot really shifted. It was pretty remarkable, right? To the point where uh, that wasn't occurring in the same way. Under stress, some of it came back, but he knew what to do. So I'll just give that example. Do you have an
1: example from your
0: own life? Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of the judgmental mind work uh, comes out of me looking at my own judgment. So, I found that my own tendencies to be very hard on myself, like a whole limiting belief around perfectionism. You know, I I did a lot of very dedicated uh, work with that on retreats, with a mentor, and uh, you know, it um, it shifted in a big way. It's not. It's not 100% gone, but a lot of it is, right? So, that, that's that's a short version from my own experience. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. And it sounds like a longer discussion, but that's the beginning. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you. Other thoughts, questions? Could be about any of the ways of working with reactivity that we've looked at. Or anything about the teachings as well, or something from your own experience.
1: All right, Donald. We have Nancy. She has a question. Nancy, I am great. I'm meeting you. There we go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. You're cool. hitting sure. the same button at the same time. Um, Donald, one of the thoughts that strikes me is that these limiting beliefs are so prevalent. Yeah. And, and, that, and that we all as individuals have a lot to do to recognize and transform and go out and away from those limiting beliefs. But Going back to the beginning, why do you think so many of us through childhood experiences or parenting or whatever, why is it that so many of us have these limiting beliefs? And what can we do to make them not be so prevalent?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a big question, Nancy. <laughs> yeah. Um, how will I answer that one? Um, yeah, my mind goes in a few different directions. Uh, Essentially, it's uh, that there's, um, you know, another way to say it is that that all of us are wounded. You know, all of us have some pain and it gets passed on over the generations. You know, so a lot of this is intergenerational. It goes way, way back. And, um, And so... You know, a lot of modern psychologists have, you know, connected some of the limiting beliefs to, for example, what is called um, a good attachment. This is in a psychological sense, not in a Buddhist sense. Basically, having a good enough relationship with a parent, so that one feels the parent is there for one, and um, will understand one, support one when things are difficult, and so forth, and in my hearing of the statistics are that in, in the US, uh, about uh, only about 60, 65% of people have that. You know, so 35, 40% don't have that. Often it's just passed on. People are wounded. You know, some of it's cultural. Uh, children's parents are, are busy, right? Some of, some of what happens is that parents aren't available, or they're not there, or they don't have skills. So I think there are all sorts of historical as well as uh, cultural and social ways that this occurs. I mean, another major factor would be all the social conditioning, let's say, about race and gender. You know, where does that come from? Well, you've got to go back hundreds of years, in some cases, thousands of years, right? that gets passed on in the culture, you know, and why does a, a young girl, you know, at a certain point historically think, I can't do that, but a boy can, right? You know, and that's a limiting belief, right? Where does that come from? So we're looking at uh, cultural dimension, social dimension, we're looking at wounds, we're looking at uh, uh, cultural factors of parents not being available, we're looking at lack of skill in the culture to know how to deal with wounds. So I probably have named a few things. So it's a lot, right? Mm-hmm. What's miraculous is that we have the resources, I would say, resources of the Dharma and the resources of uh, uh, skillful work with psychological material, social conditioning and trauma We have tremendous resources, so there's, and we have uh, communities of like-minded people that can come together and support each other. So we actually have the potential, even though what I've named is a lot, I think we have the potential to cut through it and transform it. Given how I named that, that's pretty miraculous, right? Isn't it?
1: Yeah, maybe so.
0: Yeah, yeah, but we need, uh, We need support and community. I'm not suggesting we can do this entirely on our own. Not at all, really, this dimension. We can do a lot on our own, but we need a lot of help and support. Yeah, thank you, Nancy. You're welcome. That's the beginning of that discussion, as it was with Michael. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Other sharing thoughts? We have time for maybe one, one more. Anyone else have a reflection, a sharing, a, a question? I
1: yeah, I have a question that was submitted in the group chat. And it's how can how can I deal with the second arrow once it's fired?
0: How can I deal with the second arrow once it's fired? So maybe to, maybe to come back to clarify what that means. The um, second arrow was a teaching that I talked about uh, two sessions ago. And it's a wonderful, very succinct teaching. It basically says that uh, you know, the, the Buddha was asking, everyone experiences the unpleasant. How is a practitioner different from a non-practitioner? And his answer was, everyone experiences the unpleasant, and he called that the first arrow. People who are not practicing uh, will tend because of the first arrow to shoot a second arrow which we can call the arrow of reactivity. So I have an unpleasant body sensation, I react to it, I tense around it or I blame myself. I have an unpleasant interaction, I tend to uh, uh, blame the other person or blame myself or you know, uh, shoot the second arrow in some other way. I can shoot the second arrow with my thoughts, I can be judgmental. So uh, the second arrow is also another name for reactivity, right? So what we learn to do in part, part of our training is we learn to be with the first arrow without it automatically leading to shooting the second arrow. That means that we learn how to be with the unpleasant and the pleasant. But for most of us, it's especially challenging. Can I be with unpleasant body sensations? And we do that some in meditation, especially when it's not too much or not an ordeal. We're kind of with unpleasant body sensations that get to be up to the moderate level. And then it's okay to let go if they get too intense. But we learn how to be with the unpleasant. We learn especially how to be with unpleasant emotions, with anger or sadness. And we're mindful of them. we just stay with it. And we, we can be, we can learn how to be with the irritation from an interaction. And as we do that, we'll watch tendencies in our mind to shoot the second arrow. And we learn learn not to. We learn how to take a pause, or if we're in an interaction, we learn how to watch the tendency to be reactive come through, to shoot the second arrow, to say something, and we don't do it, or we learn to when we're in interaction, when we're in an interaction, and we notice reactivity, maybe I say, "Now is a good time for a timeout, a pause, right?" And maybe we agree. Uh, you know, maybe with my partner, I make that agreement that when we get really reactive and we're going to tend to shoot the second arrow, we have a pause and we don't do that. And we come back later when we're more balanced and, uh, and less likely to shoot the second arrow. So we can do this in our interactions. We can do it internally. Some of it's about being able to be present with the first arrow because the whole tendency to shoot the second arrow comes from just automatically reacting to the first arrow. And if we don't automatically react, that gives us some space so we don't tend to shoot the second arrow. And it's also important to say that shooting the second arrow is code for shooting the second, third, fifth, 80th and 217th arrow. Okay, so it's code. It means all all further reactivity, right? And then a very crucial one in all of this are the heart practices, compassion, loving kindness, just holding ourselves or the other with some kindness, compassion, empathy. This can make a big difference too. So that's again a beginning for for this. So let me again I'll end with two things. First, I'll invite everyone just to be present with uh, any intention that comes out of our session together. How would you like to take this further? It might be just to start to notice more my patterns. When I'm reactive, maybe I can keep an eye out for any repetition of patterns or anything that seems like a pattern, a habit. See what your intention is. And then we'll close with a dedication of merit. We remember that we're practicing very much for ourselves but also for others. May the benefits of our time together be there for us, be there for those in our own circles, but also go beyond those circles to reach others, ultimately all others. May our time together be a benefit to all beings, which includes us. So thank you very much. Nice to see so many people and be with you this morning. Thank you. And until next time.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Donald. Thank you, Donald. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. You spoke directly to my heart.
0: Yeah, until next time.